Today we're going to be getting a new series, The Call to Discipleship, and we're going to focus on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I'm a pretty much a nerd in anything I put uh, my attention with. And what I mean by that is I have to immerse myself in it and really dig down deep into the things that I'm really interested in, the things that fascinate me, uh, medicine, um, EMS, fire, and especially when it comes to theology and things about the church. So I, I read a lot of articles about the condition of our church in, this, in the current day. And there is a lot of people that like to throw a lot of blame around when we consider the contracting or shrinking of the church in the last 30 years. And I've read a lot of different opinions on this. My former pastor wrote books about this and kind of trying to figure out what's going on. And I've come to the conclusion that I don't think the church has shrunk. And you say, what do you mean? you got to be crazy. I mean, church parking lots used to be full. Well, it depends on what you define as the church. It really, that's really what we have to do is define what the church is. And I think a lot of people had a wrong idea of what it meant to be a Christian. And the reason for that is because a lot of people were Christians in a time where it was very comfortable to be a Christian. They never got any pushback from it, never got any negative reaction from the world. They kind of stuck around the organization because it was a socially acceptable thing to do, but they were never really part of the actual institution that Christ created to be a representation of his kingdom on this earth. 20 years ago, I think there were a lot of people that treated the church like the lobby of a YMCA. Anybody ever been to a YMCA? A couple people? Okay, let me explain. YMCA is actually a Christian organization, and they have uh, very large gym complexes out there. They have racquetball courts, they have basketball courts, weightlifting, track, swimming pools, all kinds of stuff. And the YMCA in Kenosha is really, really nice. You go in, and the lobby, they have like cushion chairs in the lobby. They have a juice bar and a coffee bar and a snack bar, and it's all kinds of healthy stuff. They have really like kind of soothing music playing right there. And it's really nice. If you go down, sit right there in the YMCA and have a coffee and, and relax and everything else. But that's really not the YMCA's purpose. The YMCA's purpose is to break a sweat, right? To exercise. So if you're going to the lobby of the YMCA, do you call that going to the gym? That's what I'm referring to when we talk about why the numbers are down in church membership and attendance. It's because many people claimed membership, but they never really made it past the lobby, so to speak. They came to see the show. They came to see the, the speaker. They came to, to participate in some of the programs, but they never really became part of what the church really is. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to look to see how Jesus himself brought people into relationship with him. Because it's vastly different than how we often do it today. And we're going to explore this idea by looking at how Jesus called Matthew to be his disciple. A little bit of background. Jesus is in Capernaum. This is in the first few months of launching his ministry. 
Capernaum was a city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. The north side would be the top of the map for those directionally challenged. Um, top of the Sea of Galilee, and like it, the rest of the world that Jesus was born into, it was a city that was under Roman rule. The Romans had conquered that entire area and ruled over all, everything that was Israel during the time of Jesus' life. It was a very important city. It was the crossroads of several trade and travel routes. So there was a sizable Roman presence there to police all of that and to make sure that people were paying their taxes that were due. Now Jesus had just begun his ministry. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, and he's starting to become pretty well known to Roman authorities. He's becoming very well known to the local synagogue leaders who are opposing him, and he's becoming very well known to those living in the area. So that's a background of what's about to happen in the scripture here. In Matthew 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And Father God, as we study your scripture today, I ask, Father, that your word will penetrate us. It will judge our thoughts and attitudes. It will change our mind into what you think, Father. And Lord God, I ask, Father, that you help this word make us more fervent disciples for you. Lord, I ask this in your name. Amen. So today we're going to talk about what it means to be a saved and devoted follower of Jesus. And we're going to look at this moment in the life of Matthew and his call to become a disciple and contrast that to what many of us have known in our Christian experience. So we're going to start today with exploring this idea that there is a cost to following Jesus. Out of all of Jesus' disciples, Matthew stands out as one of the ones that probably had the most to lose in following Jesus. Prior to Jesus telling Matthew to follow me, Matthew was a Roman tax collector. In the time of Jesus, Rome was this huge empire spanning the entire Western world. All of what we now know as Europe, much of the Middle East, and all of Northern Africa. And to help govern and administrate this huge empire, Rome would often recruit people within the areas that they conquered to be representatives of the Roman government. And one of these jobs that they had was being a tax collector. And they would use the local people to become tax collectors because they knew everybody there. They knew where people would try to hide their money. They knew how they would try to scam the system and get away with not paying taxes. So they would hire local people for that. And because this person would be working for the Roman government, they would carry the same authority as the Roman government. They could have people arrested. They could have people imprisoned. They could have people... Or take away a person's house, any of their properties, in an extreme case, even sell their children into slavery to pay their tax debt. However, there was a cost to being a tax collector also. And that cost is kind of obvious. You had to turn your back on your own people. And to become the most despised person in that area. 
Imagine for a moment, America falls to an evasion. Now we're under the rule of another country. The new government doesn't even consider you a citizen. Barely considers you even a person. You have no rights. Everyone else in our area is living under the same conditions. You could be walking down the street and one of the soldiers from the government could force you to carry their rucksack for up to a mile. They could show up on your doorstep with a few of their friends, say, get out of your house. We're going we're gonna to quarter in your house. You can sleep out in the barn tonight or find somewhere to sleep. We're going to eat your food. We're going to party it up, maybe trash your house, and then leave. They could do that legally. You could walk past them on the street, and just for the heck of it, they could just smack you on the side of the cheek because they just didn't like the way you looked at them. The entire community would be living under these conditions. That shared misery would be felt by all. It would create within all of us an us versus them, and we would absolutely despise and hate them. Well, this was the exact conditions the Jews were living under when they lived under Roman rule. And Matthew decides he's going to go work for those people. And he's not going to do it in a way of being a servant for one of the Roman officials. He's not going to uh, mop the floor or, or, or take care of a, of a Roman official's estate. He's going to help the Romans subjugate his entire community. And he's going to help, his, help the Roman oppressors stay in power. And not only is he going to do that, He's going to be the chief tax collector for that area. He's going to train other Jewish people to betray their, their neighbors and how to collect a maximum amount from people, whether they had it or not. So you begin to see why he is so hated and despised. I mean, we say the words IRS here today, and we automatically go, ugh, right? All of us are doing our taxes right now, right? And we're starting to, gosh, why am I paying all this money into this government right now when it's doing the things it's doing? It was a it was hundred times worse in ancient Israel. Tax collectors were so hated and despised in their community, they would actually need a squad of Roman soldiers often to guard them to keep their neighbors from killing them especially the zealots. The zealots were a whole group of people who rose up during that time, and they were dedicated to throwing off Roman rule through the assassination of Roman officials. They were freedom fighters, or some people would consider them terrorists. And one of their chief targets were the tax collectors. I mean, in the synagogues, the tax collectors were spoken at the same level as Satan was. That's how much the level of hatred. But there were also some benefits. They were by far the wealthiest citizens in their area, by far. In fact, they were often given Roman citizenship, which gave them the rights and privileges above everyone else they lived around. Many of them got to earn both a salary and a commission, which means they got to keep a small percentage of what they brought in. Now, anytime you put somebody on a commission, what's the temptation? Cheat a little bit, right? Oh, yeah, I see you owe $45 in tax. Actually, it's 50 I want to be able to pocket that a little bit more, right? That's what a lot of the tax collectors would do. They had to live in large guarded houses with servants, 
but they also got luxuries that were available only to them. So, when, so take all this into consideration. When Jesus walks by Matthew's tax stand here and says, follow me, if Matthew obeys him, he loses his house, he loses his citizenship, he loses his only source of income, and most immediately, he loses his guard. The guard that's been keeping the populace from killing him. He will now have zero protection. And he's going to give all this up to join a poor, itinerant preacher whose followers are the same people he's been taxing them, who he's been taxing for years. Remember, Peter, James, John, Andrew, all came from Capernaum. They all knew who Matthew was. They had all suffered under his hand. And he's going to now go join them. Not only that, there's a zealot amongst the disciples. A zealot that's probably been trying to figure out a way to kill Matthew. He's probably thinking it's Christmas morning. This guy follows, it's Christmas morning. I never even know what Christmas is. But Jesus just gave me the first Christmas present. I have a tax collector right here I can kill. Matthew is quite literally making what most people today would consider to be an insane decision. And I know some of you are thinking, well, this is a cute story from Bible times, but let me tell you one a little bit more current. In the mid-1980s, there's a large construction firm that handled many of the larger buildings going up in the Chicago area. Throughout northern Illinois and even south, southern Wisconsin, it was the go-to play, uh, construction company to go to if you wanted a great building built. Awesome reputation, was in demand, making millions and millions and millions of dollars for the family who owned it. The head of it was rich, he was prosperous, he was at the top of the ladder of success that everyone is trying to climb in their life. And like Matthew, he heard the call of Jesus. Not only to follow Jesus, but to do so in a land that his parents had escaped from, China. In the 1980s, being found to be a Christian in China would most likely lead you to, be a, to receive a bullet. And then your family would be charged for the cost of that bullet and the cost of the soldier having to clean, clean his rifle. That's not an exaggeration. China used to do that if they shot one of your family members. And now this man is being called back to the country that his family escaped from when they defected to the United States. And this whole family became exceedingly prosperous in the United States, all while being very critical and publicly critical of the Chinese Communist government. And they were even featured on a national news program, so it wasn't like China didn't know what they were saying. And he receives this call to become a missionary to China and the rest of Asia. And what does he do? He goes to prayer. That's a good start. God, is this really you? Are you really calling me to give all this up to go back there? Then he reaches out to some of the leaders of his church for advice. He reaches out to elders, board members, pastors. And you know what just a couple of them said? God would never give you this much success and wealth and then call you to leave that much prosperity. A little bit of a rant coming here. This is why I absolutely despise the prosperity gospel. 
It's an abomination of the highest order because it focuses on the happiness of man and not the glory of God. It stems from the original sin that caused all of humanity to fall away from God. And it continues today in many churches in America. You see, the prosperity gospel would have kept Matthew in his booth. It would have kept Peter Chung running his construction company instead of being the closest thing to the Apostle Paul that exists today in the world. Why would I call him the Apostle Paul? Hundreds, if not thousands, of churches in Asia have been established because of his faithfulness. To hearing Jesus say, follow me. Millions, and I'm not exaggerating, millions upon millions of people have come to faith in Jesus and are following him today even under the threat of death in North Korea, in China, Afghanistan, throughout Asia, he has gone and preached under the threat of death for the last 30 years. Peter Chung heard that call from Jesus when Jesus said, follow me. He obeyed that call. And now he teaches others to obey that call. That's why the church in Asia is exploding in growing disciples. While we in America can't figure out which bathrooms to use. That's the problem. We've developed a shallow Christianity, if you can even call it Christianity anymore. So we've seen a problem. How do we fix it? How do we as American Christians living in 2024 become more dedicated followers of Jesus and learn to follow him more closely. Well, Jesus tells us, Matthew 16, 24. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We spoke at length of what Matthew was giving up to answer Jesus' call. We spoke of Peter Chung giving up a multi-million dollar empire to risk his life on numerous occasions to get the gospel into China and South Korea. But what does that mean for us? Well, anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time will tell you that it comes with a cost sometimes. It may be reputation. It may be being made fun of. It may be uh, standing for a biblical principle that gets you into trouble at work. When I became a paramedic, I went to a paramedic station and they had pornography everywhere. It was in the videotape player. I went there, sat down, they turned on the videotape player and it was hardcore pornography. It was like the owner sitting there with me. So, ah, you know, I'm sorry, these guys. You know, that's what I was told about it. I said, well, I will not be working here if, that's in the, if, if this is allowed. I went into the bathroom. It's just all kinds of, of garbage in there. I don't want to be in there alone with this stuff. I said, I won't work at this station if this is a thing. And he wanted me to work at that station. So he went through and removed it. But you know how that unpopular that, un or unpopular that made me? I was a holy roller. I was a God squad, all kinds of. That's the nicest thing they said about me. But you know what? Standing by that actually helped a few people come to Christ and be more bold about their faith. So it will cost you occasionally. 
It might even mean sometimes turning down promotions because God has you planted in a vital area and he needs you to stay there. It might mean living below what is considered to be normal for the people you live around at a lower standard. But I want you to remember that when Jesus tells us to count the cost, he's not just a sadist that wants us to be miserable. Jesus is speaking from personal experience when he tells us to count the cost. I mean, consider the cost he paid. When he became, came down from heaven, humbled himself to become a baby. The divine voice that spoke the universe into existence had to learn to talk. The being with a single stride could cross our galaxy had to learn to crawl. And then to walk. Jesus may have been an awkward teenager with pimples. That's probably why there's no record of Jesus' teenage life. Maybe, maybe he was a teenager. They didn't want to put it in there. It's a joke. It's okay to laugh. Jesus, who lived in the most glorious of throne rooms, traded it in what was for probably a small, single-room house with a connected workshop. He who owned everything in all creation during his ministry time had to live on the charity of others, supported largely by a few rich patrons. Probably Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were the big ones. Finally, the largest cost Jesus had to count was that he who was without sin became sin for us. So when Jesus tells us to count the cost of becoming a disciple, he's coming from a place where he knows and he has lived and has modeled it for us what he is asking us to do. A good leader never asks a subordinate to do something they're not willing to do themselves, and Jesus is the best of leaders. So when we talk about people coming to, to follow Jesus, we're not talking about just coming down an aisle to say a prayer and then never see him again, thinking they have their eternal life insurance. I'm not saying that altar calls are bad. I'm just saying that it is a beginning of a process, not the end of it. It's becoming a life commitment and giving your life to your Savior saying, Here I am, Lord. Send me. And that leads us to a second decision we have to make if we're going to become disciples of Jesus, and that is to pick up your cross. We spoke a lot about what we might have to give up, but what about what we might have to take on? You notice that Jesus' life isn't defined by a manger. Anybody have a manger cross on? How about a, a woodworking device, like a hammer or a chisel or an awe? We don't wear carpenter's tools around our neck or hang them in our churches to represent Jesus. We look at the cross. The very thing he came to do for us, and that is a symbol of the Son of Man. One of the blessings about getting older is you become, hopefully, a little bit more rep retrospective. You look back on your life and you remember some bad times and you say, God, that's why you let that hardship in my life? Because now, it's, that's nothing to me now. You built a resilience in me against that. And you've increased my faith. When at first I was ready to throw, throw away the whole thing back then. 
I, could, I couldn't understand why my life was spinning so far out of control. But now you've developed a perseverance and a resilience that came to me. I mean, if you apply this same principle to Jesus, do you think it was any mistake he was born into a family who are carpenters? Or is this part of a plan? Think about the work Jesus had to do. He didn't have power saws. He didn't have DeWalt or Dremel or any of these other things. He had one of the most difficult jobs he could have. Jesus wasn't the 90-pound wimp. He was a big guy. I mean, people don't run from the temple away from their, their life work from a guy um, yelling and carrying a whip if he's a 90-pound weakling. He had to be a big, pretty big, muscular guy. He took upon himself the very strenuous and very difficult job, I believe, to prepare his body to endure what was coming, especially the torture he would someday have to go through. Being poor, born in a poor family, they had to walk anywhere, again, preparing him for his ministry and his death, so he had the physical strength to survive when he, when he needed to survive. I just want to remind us and this is a difficult thing for us to understand, and it's a difficult thing for us to grasp, and it's even mostly difficult for us to live through. Pain can be part of God's plan. I know that's not a popular thing to say. It's hard to digest and accept, but it is what the Bible teaches. And we saw that in the lives of those who follow Jesus, and we saw it in his life as well. So when Jesus wants us to pick up our cross and trust in him, he is just asking to do what he has already done. But remember, Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He says that because he's there carrying and pulling on that yoke with you and letting it build the toughness you need for whatever life has for you in the future. It's hard sometimes. Anybody ever ask the prayer, God, can you quit perfecting me for a little while? <laughs> I have. It's like, God, I don't know what you're trying to prepare me for, but can you just ease off for a week, please? I get it. But I would ask you, what is your cross this morning? Do you have a cross in your life? If so, just take a moment and ask God. God, the, the thing I've been praying for you to take away? Is this something you actually sent or allowed in my life? Is this something you're using to humble me or prepare me for something that is coming? Is there something that Jesus needs us to pick up and trust him with? Because it's only when we count that cost and we pick up our cross that we can honestly say we are obeying his call in our life and following him. We're going to end today with just watching a quick dramatic depiction of Matthew's call. I think I've shown it before, but it's from the movie The Chosen. Matthew is sitting in his booth with his, talking to his guard named Gaius, and then Jesus comes through. I'll tell you what, that hits me right in the feels when uh, Peter asked Jesus, do you know him? He said, yes.
It means that uh, Jesus knew him even while he was sinning. It means Jesus knew him when he was making a wreck of his life. It means that God was still making a way for him to come home. Let's all rise. Sorry, I thought this hits me right in the heart. I want to read from you a quote to close. I don't have a source for it. I couldn't find who the author of it was, but it beautifully summarizes what we're talking about today. The call to discipleship is not a casual suggestion or a mere request. It's a compelling command to abandon our own ways and embrace a new life in Christ. The discipleship journey begins with a call, a divine summons that stirs up something deep within us and awakens a spirit. It's a call to leave behind the familiar and venture into the unknown. A call to surrender our lives to Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly and immediately. Father God, we just present ourselves before you this morning. Lord, all of us have areas in our life where we resist following you. We all have areas in our life where we want to hold on to that when you're asking us to let it go and trust you with it. There are thoughts and opinions that we have that we know that you don't like, actions that we do that we know aren't holy. I would ask, Father, that you help us all right now to count the cost, to pick up our cross and follow you in a much more dedicated fashion. Lord God, help us to be ambassadors of your kingdom. Help us to shine the light of Jesus into the world you have called us to live in. The workplace you've placed us in. The neighborhood that we live in. Wherever you would send us, help us to shine that light of Jesus, Father. Lord God, I just bless your people now. I ask, Father, that the word of God lives in them richly. I ask that your spirit empowers them in new and fresh ways and that you create within them a heart that hungers and thirsts after the living God. Lord God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you and thank you for coming this morning.